0: I was raised as an only child until I was about 13 or 14. When I hit that age, my mother and stepfather had their miracle child that they'd been told they wouldn't ever be able to conceive. That following summer, my mother, who worked full time my whole life as a jeweler, had that summer mostly off, and for the first time, I actually got to spend a summer with her. At the time, my parents and new half brother lived in a second floor, one bedroom flat, and two floors above, I lived with my grandparents in their two bedroom flat. With no garden or backyard, and also no park terribly close, my mother would load my little brother into a stroller, and then the three of us would go for long walks in the neighbourhood surrounding us. To make the walks more palatable, my mother and I would play what we called the movie game. We would take turns starting to quote a line from a movie, and the other one would finish it. Forever Stuck in My Head is the one that always, without fail, would make us laugh so hard we'd have to stop pushing the stroller and sit on the grass until we could breathe again. My own brother... A goddamn shit-sucking vampire! You wait till Mom finds out, buddy. Many thanks to Corey Haim's character in *The Lost Boys* for that one. No movie was safe from our attempts to stump the other. And aside from the multitude of quotes *The Lost Boys* generously provided us, while it was our number one favorite film, we had other movies that we would almost always default to: *The Wizard of Oz*, *Snow White*, *A Christmas Carol*, *Peter Pan*, and *White Christmas*. When we chose those films, we were always unsuccessful in stumping the other. But in the challenge of attempting it, I came to realize that I love old movies.
1: Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Nikki the Wife Kick here.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 45, where we will be continuing our month-long look at film noir with 1950s Dark City, directed by William Dieterle and starring Elizabeth Scott, and featuring the screen debut of our leading man, Charlton Heston.
1: That is no small thing.
0: Before the Moses, before the damn dirty apes, Mm -hmm. there was this.
1: Everyone starts somewhere. They sure do. So let's just say, welcome back to the show. Last time we had you on was way back in episode 10, our horror movie Mount Rushmore.
0: And I did a cold open for The Mummy.
1: Right, right. And now you're back, taking Sam's spot this week.
0: Yeah, she's got a year-end school project performance kind of thing, so she can't be here.
1: But you are. I am. So be sure to send Nick some love in the comments. Let her know what a great job she's doing filling in on this episode.
0: I won't mind at all if anyone does that. I'm actually a bit nervous here.
1: Oh, no need for that. We're not live or anything. There's literally so much post-production, there's nothing to worry about at all.
0: Well, we'll see about that.
1: All right. So let's do some business and get on with things.
0: So, business number one. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. This show lets us watch awesome movies and talk about them. And knowing you are out there listening is very cool and heartening.
1: That's totally true. And we love hearing from you also. You know, we keep playing with the format a little bit all the time, so if you've ever got ideas or suggestions for us, say maybe for films we should do or aspects of films we should look at or consider, let us know.
0: Also, if you would like to read a cold open for the podcast, maybe talking about a nostalgic or formative experience you had watching old movies, get in touch and let's make that happen right away.
1: You don't have to have come from a small town in the Ottawa Valley.
0: But they do get bonus points if they did, right? And if you could,
1: right now, please take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share.
0: Sharing is the easiest part. Everyone knows that. Or,
1: if you're on an audio-only platform, see about dropping us some stars and maybe a quick review.
0: You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps.
1: And then, what the heck, why not check us out on the socials?
0: Why not indeed? After all, we are on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies the podcast. El Twitter. At Ilom Podcast. And the good old-fashioned email. I
1: love old movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And of course, you should do what all the cool kids do, which is Pet the Rock. And by that, we mean head on over to PetRockRadio.ca to listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music and previous episodes of our show broadcast twice a week.
0: Monday and Saturday. Pretty damn cool. We'll link that for you in the description.
1: So, are you all set to head to the grim and gritty, shadowy urban sprawl of post war America, where hard men and harder dames try to turn schemes into easy profit?
0: Obviously, I didn't come for a romantic picnic. Play the song.
1: Wait, what?
0: Well, I just. No. Put my own sort of.
1: Just. Say the line.
0: Hit the music.
1: The director of Dark City was William Dieterle. We've spoken about Dieterle before, way back in episode one, actually.
0: That is way, way back.
1: Rope of Sand, yeah.
0: That seems like so long ago.
1: Almost a year. So, yeah. At any rate, to hear us talk about Dieterle and his career as a filmmaker, go back and listen to episode one.
0: You can even do that now. The writer is John Meredith Lucas. After attending three different military academies and dropping out of college, Lucas began his film career as an apprentice script clerk with Warner Brothers. The majority of Lucas's writing career actually consisted of TV shows, and he worked on series such as Zorro, Star Trek, and The Six Million Dollar Man. His very first screenplay was in 1950 for Dark City, and he only worked as a writer on six more films in the 50s. Lucas continued to work on a couple films and several TV series through the 60s, such as The Fugitive, but his career really started to wind down. By then, he was practically working on TV shows exclusively and wrote screenplays for a couple episodes of about 11 different series in the 70s. Lucas wrote his last two scripts in the 80s before retiring with 51 writing credits. He died in 2002 at the age of 83.
1: Despite the fact that he had made a few independent films, Dark City is considered the Hollywood feature film debut of one of the biggest stars in Hollywood history, Charlton Heston. Heston received a scholarship in theater from Northwestern University and moved to New York to pursue acting in 1946. The next year, he was performing on Broadway and working in television. Now, despite being an unknown, he landed the starring role in Dark City, and his performance impressed no less an authority than Cecil B. DeMille, so much so that he immediately cast Heston in The Greatest Show on Earth, which would win the Oscar for Best Picture. Heston became a very bankable star and began appearing in an incredible list of films, playing larger-than-life historical figures. Moses and the Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, al Cid, Michelangelo in The Agony and the Ecstasy, John the Baptist in The Greatest Story Ever Told, and as Mark Antony in two separate films. And while compiling that fantastic resume, he also found time to make Touch of Evil with Orson Welles, a great, grim and gritty noir film. Heston moved into a science fiction phase in the late 60s and into the 70s, starring in Planet of the Apes and having a brief role in the first sequel, The Omega Man and Soylent Green, which also featured Edward G. Robinson from Double Indemnity and after that he lent his then considerable star power to a series of disaster films which were quite the rage in the 1970s films like earthquake and airport 1975 he turned in a few rare villainous roles as cardinal richelieu in the three musketeers from 1973 and its sequel in the 1980s he had several television appearances making made-for-tv movies most notably a version of a man for all seasons He returned to the Planet of the Apes franchise in 2000, stunt cast as an ape character in Tim Burton's truly awful reimagining of the classic film. Heston was also a political figure, and served as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, but perhaps more notably, as the president of the National Rifle Association. And it was this affiliation that led him to appear at a pro-gun rally after the Columbine school shootings. Michael Moore, in his film Bowling for Columbine, takes Heston to task, demanding answers for his actions. And Heston gave none. For many, this might have been the last time they ever saw Heston in a film. An iconic actor who began in the late studio system and bridged the gap into New Hollywood, making a string of unforgettable films, truly some of the grandest of all time. Charlton Heston died in 2008 at the age of 84.
0: Victoria Wynant, the widowed wife of Don DeForest's hapless character in Dark City, was played by Swedish born actress Vivica Lindfors. Lynn Forrest was trained at the Royal Dramatic Training Company in Sweden, and soon started a career in film and on stage in her native country. After World War II, she moved to America, where she was signed by Warner Brothers, and made her Hollywood debut in the film To the Victor in 1948, and that same year she appeared in Adventures of Don Juan, starring the legendary drunken party boy Errol Flynn. Dark City was Lynn Forrest's fifth Hollywood film, and when the 50s hit, she was appearing on stage both on Broadway and on London's West End, while continuing to make films and beginning to make guest roles on television shows. Her resume during this time wasn't littered with hits in terms of the films she made, but she appeared in such notable television shows as Bonanza, Rawhide, The Untouchables, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The 1960s were a bit better for her, and she appeared in the biblical epic The King of Kings, as well as playing Inez in the film version of No Exit, for which she shared a Best Actress Award at the Berlin Film Festival. The 1970s were a bit slow for her, but in the 80s and 90s, Lynn Forrest enjoyed a career resurgence, appearing in movies like The Hand and Creepshow, as well as guest appearances on shows like Trapper John, M.D., Dynasty, China Beach, & and Order, and Stargate. In fact, she won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Guest Actress for her appearance on the family drama, Life Goes On. Lynn Fors spent the later part of her life teaching dramatic arts in New York before dying, back in Sweden, in her hometown, in 1995, at the age of 74.
1: There are some films that have fascinating production stories. And then there are some films that are written, financed, cast, filmed, made, released, reviewed, forgotten. Dark City is one of the latter. There's really not much to say about it. So let's just go to the tail of the tape.
0: 6.7 on IMDb. Audience scores 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. Won no awards. can Can be rented or bought on Amazon Prime Video or your local secondhand DVD shop.
1: Crooked, good-for-nothing Danny Haley runs a bookie joint. And although he pays the police for protection, his place keeps getting raided. He's got a sultry songstress girlfriend named Fran that he won't commit to and crooked pals that all have their own problems. Soldier is a bit punchy in the head, Augie has a bad attitude, and Barney has a wicked ulcer. They sound like a bunch of losers. Seriously? Seriously.
0: At Fran's club, Danny meets Arthur Wynan. He's a businessman in town to make some big purchase. He's got a lot of cash on him, and a check for $5,000. That's too much for Danny to resist, so he lures him into a friendly game of poker. On the first night of playing, the crooks let Arthur win $325, and Arthur good-naturedly talks about his very protective older brother, Sidney.
1: But on the next night of cards, the trap is sprung and Arthur loses everything, including the $5,000 check. Distraught, Arthur commits suicide and leaves a note for his brother to find. Danny doesn't want police attention, so he tells his boys to lay low and not cash the check. Barney mentioned his concerns that he's being followed, and the next morning, he's found dead.
0: Police Captain Garvey tells Danny and Augie about the note. He is sure they're connected to Arthur's death, but can't prove it. He tells them that Sidney is a dangerous and violent criminal, and probably killed Barney.
1: Planning to find Sidney before he can find them, Danny goes to Los Angeles to meet Arthur's widow. He claims to be an insurance man and that Arthur had a policy in Sidney's name. His plan was to get a line on Sid's whereabouts and maybe a picture of him.
0: Danny spends some weird romantic family time with Victoria and her son, taking them on outings and posing for pictures with them.
1: What even was that?
0: It was creepy.
1: Victoria tells him that she destroyed all the pictures of Sydney because he is such a dangerous psychopath. So Danny decides to tell her who he really is and why he is there, and that sort of kills the mood between them. And she runs him off.
0: Oh, wait. You don't sell insurance? And led to my husband's death? Yeah, you'd better go.
1: Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets killed by girl's dead husband's psychopathic brother. A tale
0: as old as time.
1: When Danny goes to see Augie, he finds him dead. Captain Garvey arrests him, somehow having jurisdiction in Los Angeles now, but then releases him, the old catch and release, making no secret of his plan to use Danny as bait to catch Sidney.
0: That's Sidney, who has only been shown so far as a giant, meaty hand with an ugly ring on it.
1: Danny heads to Las Vegas, where Soldier's working. Soldier gets him a casino job, and Fran arrives too. And the whole gang is back together. Except for Augie and Barney. Then things happen fast. While Danny's at a craps game winning over $10,000 to send to Victoria, Victoria actually calls various casinos looking for Danny to warn him that Sydney is on the way. Danny wonders wistfully if Victoria could ever forgive him, and he gives Fran the money, asking her to send it. She agrees, but she also knows it's over for her and Danny, so she heads to the airport to fly to Chicago.
0: Danny is attacked by Sydney at last, and they have a great brawl. Sidney is about to finish his revenge quest when Garvey comes in and shoots him, saving Danny at the last minute.
1: Because now Garvey somehow has jurisdiction in Las Vegas too.
0: So Danny heads to the airport and stops Fran from getting on the plane, telling her he loves her.
1: The end. What a mushy ending. I know. The romance was the least interesting part of a film that really wasn't all that interesting to begin with. And that's what they end on? The happy ending? Who could be happy with Elizabeth Scott? She's like a breathy, grinning ghoul through the entire film.
0: That is a great line to cue pros and cons with. Let's go.
1: Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. There's no stars or thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked.
0: Some things we didn't.
1: And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. I love me some Don DeFore. Always have, always will. I love how he looks, how he delivers lines, and how he imbues his characters with such a folksy, warm charm. His role as Arthur wasn't large, but he was instantly likable in the role, and easy to root for. It's a shame he didn't stick around longer, as he and Harry Morgan played the only remotely likable characters in the film. You would think that in a movie where almost every character is an unlikable mess, the director might lean into some of the more sympathetic characters a bit more. I would have. Number two, Charlton Heston is full value in his first leading role in a feature film. He is in almost every scene, almost every shot, and he's compelling to watch easily the best thing about Dark City. He looks ready-made as a movie star, and given a much better script, who knows what sort of film we might have gotten. It's very cool seeing someone of Heston's magnitude at the beginning of their career. You can see how good he was right off the bat. He had it. And it's fun watching that in its most nascent form icons number one let's start off with the music numbers performed by elizabeth scott these songs are just the worst example of that kind of floor show music performance terrible tunes sung without distinction charm or a shred of musicality by elizabeth scott hal wallace had it bad for her we all know that but man it was bad enough that he put her in movies but having her sing as well it's just too much Her voice, her face, her poses. Just awful. And how light on plot and story was this film that they needed to have so many musical numbers? We get it. Fran was lovelorn. But we didn't need to see 35 songs of her fake smiling while she crooned and set her arms in a Jesus pose. This film wasn't made one bit better with those songs, only longer. And this was not a film that needed to be as long as it was. Number two. The central premise of this movie is that the viewer is supposed to feel tension and sympathy on behalf of some professional criminals that are being pursued by the slow horse of revenge. Danny, Augie, and Barney are jerks, hoods, crooks, and they fleece Arthur, leaving him so despondent that he kills himself. And these are the three that we need to feel sorry for. Oh no, they're being pursued by Arthur's gigantic psychopath of a brother. I feel this is a bit backward. If we should be connected to and identifying with any character, it should be the brother out for revenge, not the three jerks that really had it coming. Okay, here's my pitch for a different version of this film. Cast Heston as Sidney, and anyone else as Danny, and have the movie follow Sidney's quest, as he feels duty and honor bound to avenge his brother, but he doesn't want to descend back into the violent criminal ways that have ruined his life. You could still have the love interests his brother's widow who turns to him for comfort, and with Fran who's attracted to him because he's everything that Danny is not. He's passionate and driven. Will Sidney choose revenge and likely jail? Or will he play it smart, help the cops, and get the girl? Now to me, that's a much more interesting movie. Number three, this is not a briskly paced film, but it almost grinds to a halt once Danny goes to meet Arthur's widow, and the weird, creepy romance story of this film begins to unfold. And Vivica Lindfor's low-rent impression of Ingrid Bergman seems to somehow cheapen the film, not enhance it. Hal Wallace tried valiantly to chase Casablanca in the past with movies like Rope of Sand, but here, he's cast an inferior actress channeling her inner Ilsa Lund, and the effect, frankly, is no damn good. The romance section is just the worst part of a film that isn't very good to begin with. But of course, the only thing worse than that romance is the one between Danny and Fran. Just, Ugh. Number 4. The Big-Handed Relentless Stalker All the shots of his hand and the ring, it was pretty stupid. Like, not quite as stupid as Chicago cops operating and shooting perps in Las Vegas, but still pretty bad. It's like they were trying to frame Sydney as this hulking, inhuman monster living for nothing but revenge and violence, so it was kind of funny to see him fight with Danny and not seem physically imposing at all in that scene. There's not a lot to like about this film. It's slow. It's dull. It tells an uninteresting story from the wrong perspective. It has horrible musical numbers and waters down Charlton Heston's star power with not one but two charisma vacuums posing as actresses. Some excellent supporting cast players are wasted in a film that falls squarely into the genre of, I can't believe that someone paid to have this film made. This gets a don't watch recommendation from me. You're up.
0: Okay, I'll be honest, it was pretty hard to find three pros for this one, at least for me. I did manage to scrape them together, but only if you draw some pretty fine lines and then let me stand on them. Here's what I mean Pro number one I really think there's an idea for a good movie here. Everyone loves the idea of a villain who can show compassion, self sacrifice, and then ultimately does the right thing. So honestly, if you break this down and just write the bare bones of the plot? It sounds really interesting. Pro number two, the cast. Well, not all of the cast, but some of the cast. Some of the cast. Just great. I mean, Don DeFore, everyone loves that guy. Seriously, though, he's great, like he always is. Every scene he's in, you can just feel the sincerity of his character. He brings some levity with his introduction and some much-needed likability. Dean Jagger and Ed Begley are always fun for me. And Harry Morgan? What a gem in this film. Admittedly, whenever I see him, all I think of is beloved Colonel Potter from M.A.S.H. But here, he's still years and years away from that, yet he's already been in The Oxbow Incident and Yellow Sky, and at least a dozen more. But I certainly felt like I was seeing another side to this actor that I thought I knew. Of course, that leads me right to pro number three, and it's such a big deal that he gets to be a whole pro all by himself. Charlton Heston. Wow. I mean, this is Charlton Heston. Icon. Legend. Man, I've been watching this dude my whole life, and in some truly amazing films. And getting to see him in his first Hollywood film, he was just so young, and yet still so... Charlton Heston. You did him far more justice in your breakdown about him, so I'll just leave it at Charlton Heston being such a young Charlton Heston. My cons. On the one hand, so much easier to write than the pros. On the other, you run the risk of chucking everything under the bus. Okay, so my first con is, well, the whole thing, I guess. I mean, I could say the pacing is terrible. It starts slow, it picks up, briefly. Then it stalls so hard it's almost going backwards. Then we get a wee bit of flurry near the end. Or I could point out the ridiculous leaps of logic some of the characters, mainly the police, indulge in, are way beyond the typical suspension of disbelief thing. I mean, come on. The way the cops have their first post-death meeting with Danny and spell it all out for him, the way the brother is hunting them all down... And then at the end of the very same scene, they let it slip that the actual suicide note is missing. All they had was the envelope addressed to the brother. It's like, wait, what? Then how did you know all this? And the utter boringness of this film. It's just almost unforgivable, especially with the cast they had. My second con, which might actually be the biggest con, is Elizabeth Scott. Holy. She spends 99.9% of the film with her patented half-closed eyes paired with her softly blurred smile plastered on. But wait, no. The absolute worst was her entire nightclub act. And I use those words very, very generously. Wow. I mean, I'm not Elizabeth Scott's biggest fan, but those long, long, long scenes of her standing in one of the most awkward poses I've ever seen – and singing terribly in front of our audience, and we have to suffer through it so many times. It was most definitely not an enjoyable treat in the movie, and only succeeded in slowing down those scenes far too much. Third con. Um, well, just whom were we supposed to be rooting for? I mean, clearly it's Heston's Danny, but he was a horrible person too. Soldier flat out tells him that he's, and I quote, the worst of all of them. So how exactly is he our hero? Sure, in the end, he does everything right. He lets himself be the decoy. He risks everything he has to win enough money to help Arthur's widow. And he does, very eventually, come to the realization that he truly is in love with Scott's Fran after she stood by all his incredibly arsy decisions and behavior I mean, he really isn't a hero, or even an anti-hero. So why are we watching things solely from his point of view? It's not a very sympathetic sight.
1: And is this a watch for you?
0: I'm going to hedge my bets. If you want to see Charlton Heston's first starring role in a Hollywood film, then this is a watch. If you don't, then totally, totally no.
1: All right, and with that comes the end of another episode.
0: You've got to let us know if you like this film. Mm -hmm. Neither of us did. But maybe we've missed something you noticed. If you think this film is a misunderstood classic, for sure let us know.
1: And be sure to come back next week when we will be wrapping up our month-long look at film noirs with another grim and gritty tale. Maybe even starring Burt Lancaster.
0: Oh God, you hate him so much. So much. And yet,
1: love his movies. Hence the paradox. And, of course, we will let you know now that we will not be having an episode on the last week of June, so there will be no release on the 30th, I guess.
0: Our little Sam is graduating from high school that week. Your school has graduation. Mm -hmm. The long weekend is coming in. Yeah, there's a lot going on.
1: Possible Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Go Avalanche. The Spoons live on stage here for Music Fest.
0: So no episode, then. But back in July for a month of listener requests. Send a message in, if you haven't already, with the film you want to hear covered on the show.
1: Oh, can't wait for that. But until then, be sure to watch more movies and let everyone know about us. We're not a secret, and you do not have to keep us all to yourselves.
0: So tell your friends.
1: Tell your enemies.
0: You never know. They might like cheating saps in a crooked card game as much as you do.
1: Maybe even more. For Nikki the Wife Kick, I'm Derek. And I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from FreeFX.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.